Turn your Bibles with me to Galatians 4. Galatians 4. This time we'll go ahead and dismiss our kids to Gospel Project. And while they're making their way there, um, I want you to ask you to direct your eyes and your attention to verses uh, to Galatians 4. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 20. Um, as I was getting ready for this Sunday, um, it's been a lot that's happened this week, and um, one of the things that's been impressed on me is the importance of friendship, and um, especially the fellowship that exists between Christians um, and, and that friendship. Uh, we had the great privilege of having some really good friends with us this week, and it's likely we won't see them for a while. So it's been a bit of a rough week, I think. For me, it has. It was good to see them. Even as we think about that, though, the se- the separation that exists in this life, it makes us hungry for the day when we'll be gathered with our friends for eternity in Christ. And I was writing to another friend this week, and I told him, it's likely I won't see him either. And I told him that I was glad to know that the time we will spend together in eternity will far outlast the time that we will spend separated from each other in this one. And it's made me, as I've been thinking about friendship, it's made me think about the difference between a friend and just an acquaintance. What is the difference between a friend and an acquaintance? Well, an acquaintance is someone that you know, maybe you're very familiar with them, maybe you have a working relationship with them, maybe you see them often. But they never really enter that realm of connection that a friend has. A friend will stand by you. A friend cares for you. A friend knows you. And they refuse to be put aside to a lesser uh, sort of knowledge of you. They press in and they make you think, they they improve you because they make you think harder about yourself. They are willing to put your needs and your preferences above their own. They care more about you than what they care about what they will gain by being associated with you. You find out who your friends are when the going gets rough. A friend will be willing to confront you when you are in the wrong. A friend is willing to be corrected when they are in the wrong. A friend is willing to give up their privileges and their resources to try and meet your needs. A friend is like a brother or a sister who would, you would move heaven and earth to help. Well, when we think about the book of Galatians, most of us probably don't think of it as a friendly letter. Uh, Paul wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with deep agony in his heart. And he wrote it with an effort, and in an effort to confront and to root out a dangerous cancer, a false gospel that had taken hold of the churches that were in Galatia. Now, this letter lacks in many ways the fraternal joy and the, the encouragement of other epistles. Uh, the one that comes to mind to me is <clears throat> Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is this bubbly, wonderful letter uh, of friendship. It's, it's, it, it, and it, this feels less like a letter of encouragement, and really, Galatians feels like a session of chemotherapy. It's difficult. When a doctor is treating a patient, he has to be objective. 
He has to make decisions that have less to do with whether or not his patient will like him for it and more to do with whether or not the decision will benefit their health. And yet, we all know that a patient is only going to be willing to submit to a life-saving treatment if they're convinced that the doctor has their best in mind. To this point in the book of Galatians, we've come, I think, to get a real good grasp on the dangerous situation that was going on there. We've considered the facts, we've considered the arguments of why the gospel of grace is the only message that is worthy of our hope and of our attention and of our allegiance. Now, we have come to to grapple with the way that the commands of the law have been fulfilled, how Jesus has ushered in a new age of faith and the life of the Spirit and the new covenant that stands forever by his blood. But now there's a shift. And in Galatians 4, verses 12 through 20, we see that Paul shifts from considering the evidence of the situation and of dealing with the situation at hand really to just make a personal appeal to the Galatians based on their fellowship and their friendship in the Lord. The Galatians knew Paul. He knew how he cared for them. And we see that care laid out in a great deal of pain in these verses. Not as sterile orders from a detached doctor, but as words of affection from a concerned parent and a loving brother. Uh, this, I'm going to, if you haven't read this already, I'm going to warn you, this is an uncomfortable passage to read. And though, um, through, and through, these, through these words of confrontation, we get an understanding, I think, of Paul's love and the depth of his commitment to a church that was inexplicably wandering into a corrupted and a distorted gospel. It's a reminder that the church of Christ, this side of glory, is not a place for perfect people, that it's really more like a hospital. Jesus came to heal the sick, to care for the wounded, to raise the dead. Jesus cares for the broken. He came to bear away our brokenness and our infirmities. He is long-suffering, and he suffers long with each one of us as he applies this healing salve of the gospel to us, which he has accomplished through his own sacrifice. We see how Jesus deals with sinners in this passage, and there's a lot of care written into this, even in the midst of this pain. And what we learn as we look at this passage is that Jesus truly is the best friend a sinner can have, not because he enables them to sin, but because he rescues them from it. This care, this friendship is something that all God's people are meant to share in with each other, and that is really the focus of our text this morning. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading Galatians 4, verses 12 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? 
They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Please be seated. There's a lot of pain in these verses. It's hard hard to read them. But if there's anything obvious about this set of verses, it's that Paul cared deeply for these beloved brothers and sisters in the churches of Galatia. Because he cared for them as deeply as he did, he was willing to appeal to them to do something. And that appeal is what marks this significant shift in the, pro- the progression of the letter. Uh, to this point, Paul hasn't really told the Galatians to do anything. But in verse 12, that changes. And Paul implores the Galatians urgently to become as he is. Now, this is an action which is built on everything that Paul has said so far as he has distinguished and defended the authenticity of the gospel of grace which the Galatians had first received from him. Paul is now calling them back to follow his example, calling them to live free from the law and to take ownership of the freedom that Jesus had secured for them through his perfect sacrifice. This is a, a call of how to live This is a call to become like Christ, and it is the central focus of our passage. Uh, It flavors everything in these verses from the way that Paul talks about the way he came to know the Galatians in the first place, to his evaluation of what has happened to them since these false teachers had come in and made a mess of things, and then even to the way that Paul talks about how he is still bearing with them in this struggle. But as we look at the, the exhortation that Paul makes in this passage, uh, the, the, really the feature of Paul's appeal uh, that I want to focus on is the way, that he, uh, the way that he models how Christians are called to care for each other. It's the supernatural care, the devoted friendship that Paul shows here as he addresses his friends in Galatia that testifies to the transforming truth of the gospel of grace in his life. And then that leads us then to consider our main idea uh, for the sermon this morning, which is this. Christians are called to care. Christians are called to care. We want to look this morning at three ways that Christians are called to care as a result of the transforming truth of the gospel. First of all, we're called to care even and especially when it's costly called to care even when it's costly. Second, we're called to care so that we guard against corruption. We're called to guard against corruption. Third, we're called to care for what has been consecrated. We're called to care for what has been consecrated. Now first we want to begin by looking at how we are called to care even when it's costly. Now Paul, when you read Paul's letters to the churches, uh, you realize that Paul didn't know the believers in every church that he wrote to, at least not personally. Uh, He wrote the book of Romans as an encouragement to believers in Rome whom he had yet to meet. 
But Paul had a deep and personal relationship with the believers who were in the Galatian churches. He thought of them as if they were his own children. He knew how they had been rescued out of their former lives in paganism. He had witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit as he worked in and among them. He knew their faces. He knew their names, not just their reputations. And so we can see that in the way he appeals to these, these beloved brothers and sisters in verses 12 through 14. Now, as we read this passage, we have to do so through the lens of, of Paul's appeal. So before we get to the aspect of how we're called to care, we, we need to look at this, this appeal that Paul is making, since that's the feature, really, that motivates everything that Paul has to say to the Galatians, uh, whether that's where he's laying out his history with them, with them, or whether he's laying out the current state of things, or whether he's laying out the relationship he has with them now. So beginning here, he says, Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now, it's normal and natural for us to read Paul's address, uh, brothers, at the beginning of the sentence. But really, the emphasis of the original phrasing falls on the appeal that Paul makes to the Galatians, to be like him. Paul's chief desire in everything he's about to say is that the Galatians would turn back to the gospel of grace that they had first received from him, that they would reject the corrupting false gospel that is getting its grasp on their hearts. And he's comfortable telling uh, them to become as he is for the same reason that he told the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, Paul is not looking to create little mini-me's. He's looking to create people who are following after Christ. Paul had embraced the freedom of the cross of Christ, and he wanted the Galatian believers to experience the same. He did not want to see them come back into slavery under the old elementary principles of the world he mentioned earlier, uh, trying to earn their way into heaven, into God's favor through keeping uh, commands of the law. He knew that that would end in disaster since he has shown previous to this that no one is justified in the sight of God through works, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. So when we read Paul writing to the Galatians saying, be like me, we shouldn't understand that he's some sort of jealous influencer who's concerned about losing his following. No, Paul is saying, be like me because I'm a servant of Christ. Paul, as a servant of Christ, was concerned for the souls of his friends, of his children in the faith. And so he makes this heartfelt appeal to them. Now, before the Galatians had heard the gospel and believed, uh, we saw earlier in, when we were in the beginning of chapter 4 that they were pagans, that they were enslaved to false gods, and that they were walking according to the natural passions of their sinful hearts. But when they believed the gospel... They became sons of God with Paul in Christ. And now they're in danger because they're being led down another path, led astray into slavery, being told that, th that they had to live under the rule of the law in order to get God's blessing of salvation for themselves. Paul, who had been born under the law as a Jew, says that he had become like the Galatians, which I understand to mean that he is referring to the way he in Christ died to the law. He wanted the Galatians to become like him by resting in the gospel of grace. He did not want to see them fall into old ways that were powerless to save them. He didn't want to see them ensnared in this 
tar pit of works, trying to earn their way into heaven. As an apostle, Paul understood that he had been called to live his life as an example to the flock of Christ. Now, I want to encourage you to understand that this thing where Paul says, be like me, is not only for apostles. But rather, this is the, should be the desire of every believer to be able to say to our friends, to our family, be like me as I imitate Christ. Any one of us might feel like we might be out of line for telling someone to be like us. After all, there's things in our lives uh, and we fall so short of the perfection of Christ that there are many things we don't want other people to follow us in. We're more inclined to say, do as I say, not as I do. But the goal and the work of the Holy Spirit as he is forming Christ in us is to make us so that we are able to say to our, to our friends, to our family, to our children, to our parents, to our grandparents, follow me because I'm following Christ. When Jesus calls us to be his disciples, he calls us also to make disciples, to teach others what he has taught us. So if you're in Christ... You need to understand you have a certain obligation to live this way because your life isn't yours to live how you think best. It's been given to you by Christ. Christ lives in you. And so you have to understand that for all your faults and all your failings, that the gospel is more powerful and more potent and you have been called and equipped to live as an example to others. That does not mean in any way that you're going to be perfect. Actually, you can become a great model of the gospel as you bear out and you confess that where you have fallen. <clears throat> and then you say, you point other people to the grace of Christ by saying, I'm a great sinner and Christ is a greater Savior. That is being a great example of a disciple of Christ. Your life is if you're a follower of Christ, has been marked by grace. You've been given a renewed purpose, and that is a call to live for the glory of King Jesus. So live it publicly. Now, when we first come to faith, we're really not fit to be an example to anyone, are we? But as we mature in the faith, as we walk with Christ, we should, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be able to call out to others to follow our example. This morning, we, we talked about enduring trials and tribulations and one of the facets of that we have to understand is that if we're to do that it's by the grace that is at work in us if this were up to us we would most certainly fail but we have this promise of grace this experience of mercy that we are being day by day transformed into the image of christ one of the evidences that the reality of grace was at work in the lives of the galatians was the way that they received Paul when he first came to them. They cared for Paul even when it was costly for them. Look at the second part of verse 12. Paul reaches back into the past to show the Galatians evidences of the Spirit's work in them. He says, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial or a tribulation to you, a temptation, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, last week we touched a bit on the doctrine of election. Here, 
As Paul recounts the way that he first came to the Galatians and the, the way that they received him, we see again how God was meticulously orchestrating things to bring the Galatians into their inheritance of salvation that he had secured for them through Christ. Uh, to our surprise, Paul tells the Galatians that he ended up preaching the gospel to them not because he planned to, but because he was sick. He doesn't mention how he was sick, only that his condition was a trial to the Galatians, and that through his illness and the care they showed, though it, though it proved costly to them, he says that they did not despise him or think less of him. They did not take steps to secure their own physical safety, but instead they received him in a manner that was worthy of Christ himself. Now from a human standpoint, especially considering the Galatians' own background in paganism, Paul's sickness should have been a huge barrier to the gospel. It would have been very tempting for the Galatians to hear the message Paul preached and to dismiss it simply on the basis of how weak and ill he was. Uh, think about it. This guy you've never met shows up and he is sick beyond belief. So sick that for you to care for him, it's going to be a burden. People are going to talk. And then he comes to you and he's preaching up to you about this Messiah who was crucified shamefully and that he's risen from the dead and that you should believe it. I'm sorry, but from a human standpoint, that's not very convincing. And yet Paul says that as he himself was suffering with this illness, this suffering that this illness was the whole reason that the Galatians came to know the power of God to save them from their sins. This is not something you can point at in human wisdom and say, oh, that makes sense. No, God is doing something here. As one scholar says, the weakness of Paul manifested in sickness was the pathway by which Christ's strength was manifested through him. The Galatians didn't receive Paul because he was this picture of health and prosperity and strength. They received him because God's power had been perfected in his weakness. God used what was weak and foolish, things that were not, to bring the Galatians to their salvation and to their inheritance of faith. The Spirit apparently had been preparing them to receive this very message at this very particular time, so that when Paul came to them, almost it seemed by accident, in his weakness, preaching a crucified king, they received him, and they also received his message, and they became sons of God with him. That is a powerful display of the sovereignty of God in salvation, isn't it? In verse 15, Paul calls the way that the Galatians received him and the way they believed the gospel of grace he preached to them their blessedness, their, their blessing. So here in these Roman colonies, the Spirit of God was moving, preparing the ground before Paul had ever arrived. And the glory of Christ shone as the gospel was preached and dead hearts came alive and this church was born. What an amazing thing that is. Uh, the reality of the work of the Spirit shone through in the love and the acts of love and care that the Galatians showed Paul. When they had every reason to shun Paul, to protect their own, will, their own well-being, to even protect their own reputations, they risked because they saw the glory of Christ in the message that Paul preached to them and they believed it. They saw that it was worth the risk to care for him. 
and to receive him in a worthy manner. They received him and they received his message as they would have received Jesus himself. And that is the sort of, res- of response that only God can orchestrate because it takes a divine work to open hearts to this message of the gospel. We are meant to see the way that the Galatians received Paul and the gospel of grace as evidence of the salvation that was theirs through faith in Christ. We're meant to understand that the Holy Spirit was working in them, preparing them to receive this message of salvation, to become children of God. In Matthew 10, Jesus told his disciples, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And then he he lays out the promise. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When When the Galatians received Paul as they did, the reward that came to them in spite of his weakness was the reward of eternal life because they heard and believed the gospel of grace according to the sovereign plan of God. There's a couple things that we need to see here and how they affect us. First, we need to see and understand that there are no accidents in the plans of God. Paul's sickness was uncomfortable, but God in his love and in his wisdom orchestrated that suffering to bring many people into the kingdom of God. A wise gardener will break up and bruise the roots of a tree before he plants it in good soil because he knows that the bruising stimulates growth. Sometimes God allows us to be bruised and broken so that it will draw the roots of our hearts more deeply into Christ. And through that, the fruit of our faith often grows richer and deeper and more lovely. Aspersion has said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. God did not waste Paul's suffering, and you must trust that he will not waste yours either. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Whether you find yourselves in a, in a time of plenty or in a time that is lean, whether you find yourself in a time of happiness or sadness or fear, the unshakable purposes of God ensure that Christ will have his glory in your life. And if our suffering in this life amounts to eternal glory in heaven, then we should not despise the difficult road that God may call us to travel, but rather we should exalt that when we suffer with Christ, we We suffer in in the hope, knowing that he is really will work all things together for his glory and for our good. We have this sure foundation that Jesus' glory is secure in the plan of God. Second thing we need to see in this, and this actually gets to the point, uh, is that to see that one of the marks of spiritual life is caring for the needs of others, especially when it's hard. Christians are called to care, especially when it's hard. It is not natural to risk your well-being for the life of another. And yet Jesus calls his people to live dangerously, to be on mission, trusting that he really is in control. It takes courage to hang on the rope of Christ 
But when we realize he's actually the one holding us and that he cares for us and that not one hair can fall to the ground from our head apart from the say-so of the Father who loves us, then we know we can take risks. We can care for others, even when it's dangerous, even when it's difficult, even when it means putting our reputations on the line or facing ridicule, scorn, and slander. Christians are called to care, and Christian care is fueled by an affection for Jesus. As he has cared for us, so we are called to care for others. He did not stop at the point of death, but suffered hell on the cross for you. He shed his blood for us while we were yet his enemies. And the marks of discipleship, the the cross of discipleship, means loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, living with a risky abandonment for the priorities of heaven. People will do great and very inconvenient things for those they hold in high regard. And so we ought to judge others according to the worth of Christ and in the way of Christ who loved us when we were unlovable. Love is willing to suffer for the sake of truth because it counts the glory of God and the affection of God as worth more than anything we could receive here and now. There's a great blessing in caring for others even when it costs us. This is the way of Christ. This is the way for us as his people. So we've seen that Christians are called to care even when it's costly. Second, we see that Christians are called to care for the truth. We're to care for the truth. The way that the Galatians received Paul was a blessing. It was a blessing for Paul. It was a blessing for them since through receiving him, they also heard and believed the gospel of salvation. Paul's sickness was no accident and God used it to save these men and women through the power of his grace in Christ. But now we see that as false teachers had come in and distracted the Galatians from that gospel of grace, Paul asked them in verse 15, What happened to you? What has become of your blessedness? Some deep and terrible changes were taking place in the church. Now at one point, the Galatians cared so deeply for Paul that he says they they would have been willing, if it had helped Paul, to gouge out their eyes and to give them to Paul. But now, being led on by these false teachers, they've apparently come to see the man they loved as their enemy. Some people think that this line from Paul about gouging out your eyes is an indication of the sort of illness that first brought Paul to Galatia, something that had to do with his eyes, and that's possible. But I think really we're missing the point if we just turn and try to figure out how was Paul sick. The point Paul is making, the focus Paul is having, is on the the sort of relationship he shared with the Galatian believers, especially when they first came to faith. Uh, it's honestly, when you read this, it's sort of a gruesome thing to think about gouging somebody's eyes out and, and giving them to someone else. And yet, that's the level of extreme love that Paul shared with this church. They loved each other more than they cared about seeing. That's the sort of relationship, I think, that develops between people who have been bound together by the gospel. That's the sort of affection that gets a hold of your heart when the gospel gets a hold of you. That's the level of costly care that the Galatians were willing to show Paul because of the way the Holy Spirit was working in them. How do you go from being willing to pluck out your eyes from some, for someone to then thinking about them as your enemy? 
That's a mystery, isn't it? Well, it happens when we grow out of touch with the truth of the gospel of grace. When the lie of this false gospel, this gospel that said that you had to earn your place in God's family by keeping certain commands, when it took hold of the Galatians, it colored their view of Paul. When they wandered away from the gospel they had first received, they began to regard the man they loved, the man who they said they would take their eyes out for, as a threat. Now, I think that Paul meant this verse really to have a shock value, to, to give the Galatians a picture of themselves. Now, judging from the way that Paul addresses them here as his brothers, I don't think we're meant to see, to see that Paul thought of the Galatians as his enemies, nor do I think that the Galatians had come or would say that they thought of Paul as, his, as their enemy. Nevertheless, that's the path that this church, these churches were on. It's almost certain that the teachers who were troubling the churches with this distortion of the gospel certainly saw Paul as an enemy because his, com- uh, because his commitment to the gospel of grace was not allowing him to be silent about what they were doing, how they were taking advantage of the church. The care and the affection that the Galatians showed Paul would have been of little consequence if they left the truth and if they forsook the blessing that had come to them because of it, this gospel of grace. The Galatians had shown Paul an astonishing level of dedication and care. But now that they had wandered from the truth, their friendship with him and their friendship towards King Jesus was in question. Paul was not their enemy. That's why he told the Galatians the truth. The only way they could be saved was by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's why Paul battled for them at great personal cost because he loved them and because he saw them as the beautiful bride of Christ. Paul was not their enemy, but he was an enemy of the false gospel that was being preached in these churches. Like a parent who's concerned for the safety of their children, so Paul was concerned about the direction these churches were going, and so he was willing to confront it with the truth. Love, though, is what compelled him to write this letter. Love for the Galatians, love for the truth, and love for the glory of Christ. As believers, we are called to care. And we must do that. That means that we ought to take steps to guard against all corruptions of the truth. When the gospel gets corrupted, it corrupts the relationships of the people of God. It turns us against each other. The truth of the gospel is what fuels Christian compassion and action. Christian love flows out of a love for Christ. We show grace to others out of the grace that has been shown to us by God. But if you saw a branch off a tree and throw it down on the ground, it will bear no fruit, and neither will a faith that has been cut off from the truth of the gospel of grace. Christians must care. They must care about the truth of the gospel or else all of this is for nothing. Lastly, Christians are called to care for what has been consecrated. Called to care for what has been consecrated. I know consecration is a big word, but I needed a C word and it fit. So there you go. Fact of the matter, as we look at this passage, is that motives matter. Motives matter. True friendship is driven by pure motives, isn't it? Paul had history. He had cred with the Galatian believers. They knew him. He knew them. And he loved them in spite of all their faults. They loved him in spite of his weakness. 
Paul wanted to see these believers thriving in freedom in Christ. His joy was seeing their joy made full in the gospel of grace. Not so these false teachers who were trying to turn the Galatians against Paul and lure them away into a distortion of the truth which suited their own purposes. Look at verse 17. Paul says, They make much of you. They make you feel good. But for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Now, I have been on the lots of many cars dealerships and a, I have dealt with my fair share of used car salesmen. A used car salesman, if they're worth anything, will make you feel like you are the most important person on the lot. They're good at it. They share, they ask you about who you are. They get a hold of what your goals are in this car. They, they come alongside you as a partner in this. They're as excited about you getting the car as you are. But in the end, when you settle down and you start talking about prices, you realize their only true goal is to get you to buy that car. The men who were agitating the Galatians were slick. They were speaking smooth words. But their goal was really, in the end, to serve themselves at the expense of the church. They were looking for disciples of their own. They were preaching a distortion of the gospel that robbed the Galatians of their inheritance and then subjected them to their authority. They were courting the Galatians, speaking smooth words to them, words of honey, but in the end, they were trying to rob them. They were trying to cut them off from the inheritance that Jesus had secured for the Galatians. They said that the only way for the Galatians to be included in the people of God was through keeping the commandments of the law. But in effect, they were actually excluding the Galatians because they were leading them away from the grace which was able to free them from their enslavement and make them free men and free women under Christ. They were leading them into chains, not into freedom. In response, Paul tells the Galatians in verse 18 that while it is always good, he says, it is good, always good to be made of, made good, to made much of for a good purpose. And not just when he's with them. He says it is good to be zealous for good things. It is good for good purposes and good actions to be commended. But that is clearly not why the false teachers were showing such zeal for the Galatians. They claimed to have wisdom, but they were in fact wolves in sheep's clothing, seeking to use the church for their own purposes and their own plans. Paul, on the other hand, shows that his motives were driven by a care and a concern for the Galatians themselves. He didn't see the Galatians as a means to an end, as something that was meant to serve him. He had a zeal for them, not because he thought that they belonged to him, but because they belonged to Christ. Christ had consecrated these churches by his own blood. They were his. And so when Paul saw the Galatians, he saw the churches for which Christ had died. And he looked on them with motives, with pure motives, the sort of motives that a mother has for her children. Now, I have seen firsthand what it takes to bring a baby into the world. And I have got to say, I have the utmost respect for mothers childbirth is glorious but it is messy it is hard it is dangerous and and, and most certainly it is painful motherhood is not for the faint of heart it leaves lasting battle scars on your body 
And when Paul talks about the way he feels for these churches and of their faithfulness, it's the only image that will fit the affection and the zeal he has for these people. Look at verses 19 and 20. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You can feel the agony in Paul's voice there. But it's an agony that's driven by concern and affection. They say that giving birth is one of the worst pains that a person can endure. And having seen it, I don't doubt that because I have seen Ellie in labor and it is by far the worst pain I've ever watched someone go through. I have never felt so weak as when I realized there was absolutely nothing I could do to make that pain go away except to say, keep breathing. Inadequate words, okay? It doesn't work. Like, yeah, the doctor's like, tell her to keep breathing. How do you tell someone to keep breathing when they look like that? Don't give up. The relief of giving birth is having a healthy baby. The pain is pretty much done once they're out in the world. And then all of a sudden, nobody's talking about how bad it was. They're talking about how glorious this moment is. And yet here's Paul speaking with the affection of a mother in labor, saying that it is as if he is having to give birth to the Galatians a second time which is to say that Paul is in anguish over the condition of these churches, suffering these birth pangs again until Christ is formed in them. Now, Paul was a man, and he did not know what it was like to firsthand have a baby. But he uses that image as a metaphor to describe the way he was battling for the Galatians in their faith and to describe his willingness to suffer on their behalf until they had been reformed in the truth of the gospel he had preached to them. He was willing to do the pain because he loved them. In other places, Paul calls himself the spiritual father of those who believe the gospel through him. But here, and uniquely, he uses the imagery of childbirth to depict the level of his loving affection for the bride of Christ and the suffering he was willing to endure for her. Paul had suffered once when he came to Galatia, struggling with this bodily ailment. But now we see he's suffering again battling with a false gospel, eagerly desiring that the Galatians would embrace the inheritance that Jesus has secured for them through faith. His agony was due in part from not being able to be with the Galatians in person. One of the most painful things is to be separated from a child when they're in pain. And here you see that agony as Paul is separated from them, unable to come to them in person to deal with the situation. Paul's separation from them only added to his concern that daily they were being further drawn away from the king who loved them and saved them. Paul shows us the true meaning of care. He was willing to suffer as he did these these birth pangs because his greatest joy was to see people reconciled to God and to see Christ exalted as the Savior of the world. These are the motives of a true friend. As believers, we are called to love what Christ has claimed as his own, what he has consecrated as his. You can find a lot, a lot of ugliness in the local church. You can create a long, 
long list of the reasons you don't like the church and why, don't you, why you think you are exempt from having anything to do with it. But know this. Jesus loves his bride. And he is making her new. He is making her lovely. And the people you may be tempted to look at as unlovable and as beyond help, Christ shed his precious blood for. That will stop the mouth of the accuser. We are a long way from being a perfect local church as Grace Baptist Church. A long way. And until we are gathered together in the direct presence of the king, we're still not going to be a perfect church. Still, as I read Paul's anguish that he had over these churches, my heart is moved as a pastor because I feel about you the way Paul felt about the churches he wrote to and ministered to. As your pastor, I want you to know my deepest desire is to see Jesus formed in you. I want next year to look at your life and to say, they're more like Jesus. They're more like Jesus. They're more like Jesus until the day when God says, come and be with me. That is what shepherding is all about. The church is a precious thing, a consecrated thing, something Jesus gave his life for, something he literally went through hell for. If we love Christ, then we ought to love what he loves. And that means that for all the faults we may see in the church, we must look deeper and we must see her for what she is and, for the, and long for the day when she will be clothed in the brilliance of the wedding dress that has been reserved for her, which is the righteousness of Christ. We must be willing to bear with each other, to invest in each other, to have a certain sort of zeal and affection for each other that flows out of our love for Jesus. As Christians, we are called to care for what Jesus has consecrated as his own. Paul's deepest desire to see Christ formed in the church and in the individual members of it made him willing to suffer a great cost for her, even, even when it caused him the sort of agony of having to go through birth a second time. Now, I have suffered greatly at the hands of people who said they were Christians, and I know that some of you have as well if not all of you. It's Jesus' affection for the church that makes me love the church too. And Paul is a great example of what it means to love the bride of Christ as in the same way that we ourselves have been loved by him. So Jesus cares for you. And if you're a follower of him, you must care about what he cares about. He's your king. He's your brother. He's your friend. And we must care for the needs of others when it hurts we must care for the truth because without the truth love and service is nothing and finally we must care for what christ has set his own affection on we must care for his bride let's pray our lord and our god greater love the world has not seen than when Jesus Christ came and suffered for us. When Jesus says, Father, that, that, um, that the greatest love a man can have is to lay his life down for his friends, we can know that we know the meaning of that in a way that 
uh, merely laying a physical life down is not uh, able to, to, to fully understand. Because we know that Jesus laid down his life in a way that no one else could. And he suffered in our place for the sins that we have committed to make us the children of you, children of grace. And I pray, Father, that as we think about the sacrifice he gave for us, that it would move us and motivate to love others and to care for them as you've cared for us. Father, we don't know what sort of trials, sort of challenges, sort of triumphs we're going to face this week. But I just pray, Father, that you would give us an enduring view of the care that Christ has shown us as our deepest and most glorious friend so that we would be a friend to others and that you would rescue the lost from their sin in our community through our witness. We thank you and we praise you, our great God and our King. Amen.